Tonight's lesson is about everything. All the way up and all the way down. Everything. All the way up. Let's talk about all the way up. This lesson is about the universe. Did you know that the universe is 93 billion light years in diameter? Including 2 trillion galaxies. Galaxies like what we currently live in as a galaxy. There's 2 trillion of those of the Milky Way. And 1 billion trillion stars. Which means that there are about as many stars as there are grains of sand on every beach on earth combined. Right, okay. Now let's think about all the way down. I want you to think about your eyeball tonight. Your eyeball is one inch across, yet contains 107 million cells that are sensitive to light. With two million working parts in that eye, two million working parts, your iris has 256 features completely unique to you and you alone. Compared to the fingerprint, which has about 40. Right now, at this very moment, light is entering your cornea, passing through your pupil, with the iris controlling how much light comes in, then it hits the lens inside your eyes, leading to the vitreous humor, which is this clear, jelly-like substance within your eye, which leads the light to the retina in the back of your eye, that the image is inverted, then the optic nerve takes the signal to the visual cortex of the brain, which turns that signal into me. Praise the Lord. That's happening right now, and that takes 13 milliseconds. All the way up, one billion trillion stars, all the way down to this one inch eyeball with 107 million cells sensitive to light. Tonight we're talking about the work of God in creation. This is the foundational document, I mean, sorry, the foundational doctrine of all Scripture. It's right there at the very beginning. Everything is built upon in the beginning God created. It's the most foundational doctrine. Everything starts here. That everything exists because God created it. Not only is it the most foundational doctrine, but it's also the most debated doctrine in all of Scripture. This is it. This is the most debated topic that the Bible talks about. Think about our culture built upon the dogmas of materialism, which means that nothing exists except the physical. There's no, there's no spirit. There's no God. There's no angels. There's, no, there's nothing. There's just the physical chemicals in your brain and nothing else. Think about scientism, which is the belief that science can explain every single thing about this universe. We don't need any religion or anything like that. Think about the theory of evolution, um, which we'll talk about here later. All these are essential doctrines of our secular age. This is, this is the air we live and move and have our being, is it not? All those stand in bold opposition to the doctrine of creation. Which we see if you'll turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1. As we look at the works of God. I want to read the first three verses. We'll read a lot more here in chapter 1. Let's read these. Genesis 1, 1-3. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. I know that's familiar, but that one verse is just so breathtaking to think about it. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Real quick, I want to talk about just from these three verses, this idea of creation itself, what we learn about the doctrine of God. Some of this will be review. Not that we're going to have a test at the end as I was joking before we started. There's going to be no test at the end of this class. But I want to talk about some, some just doctrines we see in these first three verses. Number one, we see God's aseity. We talked about this, I forget how long ago, but say means that God is from Himself. That God is self-sufficient. God is eternal. That God is self-existent, completely independent of all things. We see this because in the first four words of Scripture, it says, in the beginning, God. Nothing else existed. Nothing could support God. There was no resources that God needed. But God alone existed in the beginning as the complete self-sufficient, self-existent, eternal, from Himself, God. In every worldview, there has to be something that's self-existent. Something that just has the power of existence in itself. It's completely illogical to believe that something came from nothing, as we talked about in session two of this. That, that, that nothing existed, and then all of a sudden something did. Something has to be self-existent. And as we mentioned in week two, you can go back to this two if you need to, that a great apologetic, a great defense for Christianity's truthfulness is the fact that something exists. It's really hard to explain. What we see here in Genesis 1.1 is that God created everything all the way up and all the way down. The Latin term for it is ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. God and God alone existed. He speaks and creation comes into being. He says, let there be light and there was light. This is Creation out of nothing. Romans 4.17 says, In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The biblical worldview is not that God existed and a ton of resources he could use to create stuff existed, but God alone existed and he just spoke this stuff into creation. Amen. Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the universe was created. By the Word of God. Do you see the majesty in that sentence? The universe was created. Two trillion galaxies. By the Word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There was no pre-existing material. God didn't create out of Himself even. But He created out of nothing. We also see God's omnipotence in creation. That God can do anything He wills to do. That there is no limitation to God's capability or strength. That He could say, let there be light, and light began to exist. Consider that. Jeremiah's question in Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? That answer, the, question, the answer to that question is a resounding no that we see in the doctrine of creation. Nothing is too hard for God because He can create the universe by His Word. That's what we see in Psalm 33, verse 6. By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. Verse 9 says, For He spoke, and it came to be. 
He commanded, and it stood firm. Behold our God, omnipotent. He can speak, and things come into being out of nothing. The next thing we see here, we haven't covered this one, is in creation, we see the creativity of our God. Do we not? I think next month, there's um, the sequel to Avatar is coming out. I don't know if you guys saw that movie. It came, it's kind of weird. It came out like 15 years ago, and now the sequel's coming out. It's like, wait, this is supposed to be a trilogy. When did this happen? I don't know. But anyway, Avatar, when it first came out, everybody just raved and raved about how um, the director, James Cameron, created this whole new world. It was like, oh, he created this new world. But if you look at the world, it's like the world has trees and plants and animals and feet and all this stuff. It, it was basically James Cameron took our world and like just made a different one. Does that make sense? But when God created the world, he didn't have like a palette. He didn't have like a sample to take from. Him. Which means in creation, God invented out of his own mind and creativity trees and octopuses and anteaters and grass and dirt and pancakes or at least the stuff that can make pancakes. Um, salt and light. All these things are just from God's mind. You see the creativity there? It could have just been the most bland, stale universe. No colors, no tastes, um, no different animals. But instead, there's this enormous variety and creativity that we see in creation. I think that's pretty cool. Next, we see God's goodness. So what I want to do is I want to read verse 3 all the way down to verse 27. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to, each, to the its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be light in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God sent them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. I know I, was going to, I said we were going to stop there. Let's just finish the chapter out. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. I'm going to keep going, just a couple verses. Then, thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. What we see there in that just majestic passage that I want to point out, the doctrine of God is God's goodness. Over and over, what God creates is good. Creation is good. So often we can get in this faulty mindset of, Spiritual things are good and, and um, things of this earth are bad. Natural things are bad. Worldly things are bad. But the world was created good. Amen. Creation is what I mean. And we see this, you know, in verse, verse 4. It says that God, um, we're, sorry, God separates that. Um, and he, it says it over and over again. Verse 10, it says, um, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, and God saw that it was good. Over and over again, the emphasis is God's creation reflects God's goodness. So much so at the end, verse 31, and God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. So what do we learn about God in creation? We see that He's all say, omnipotent, creative, and good. Now, as we read Genesis 1, we can't help but kind of waft into um, the controversy, right? I mean, it's just sitting there right in our face in this secular age, um, in this materialistic age of how to take Genesis 1. What does this mean? Now, I want to talk about three ways that Christians see this passage. This is not something like the Trinity. Last week... Uh, Last week and the week before that, we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. And that was a situation where you have to get that right to be a Christian. And we're not going to let you, you know, disagree with the doctrine of the Trinity and, and, and act like we're friends. Does that make sense? Like, that's a crucial... Now, this one, 
I'm going to give you the liberty to be wrong about. Okay, you can be wrong about creation. I'm going to give you what I think is right, but you can be wrong about it and still be a Christian. Does that make sense? The Trinity, you, you can't. This one, you can't. I want to give you three options. I'm going to tell you what, what I believe. Number one is the day-age theory, um, which is that each day talked about in Genesis chapter 1 is symbolic for thousands of years. And this is to... to um, what's the word, to harmonize it with current scientific consensus, right? That, we'll talk about that here in a second, the age of the earth. So the first one is the day age. Every single day really represents thousands and thousands of years. Just put how many years you want. I mean, day one could be a billion years for all of you. Number two is the framework theory, which says that each day is topically arranged to poetically show how God created the uh, With this framework theory, the first three days are forming, Days and then the, the next three days, four through six, are filling days. So, for instance, on day one, God creates light and darkness, day and night, time. And so then on day four, He creates the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all that stuff. So the first day He forms, kind of like he, he puts the canvas together, and then on the corresponding day, He, he fills it. So day one is light, darkness, and then day four is the, the luminaries. Day two is the, the waters. So day five is the birds and the fish. Day three is earth and vegetation. And so day six is land animals. You, you see the connection. But the option number three is to take Genesis 1 as, as talking about literal 24-hour days. I'll just be up front that this is my position. Um, that is 24-hour days. I'll tell you why. Um, number one, as we just talked about, God created everything out of nothing by the power of His Word. Once we settle that fact, the, the 24-hour thing doesn't bother me at all. Does that make sense? Once you believe that God can speak and things come into existence, time isn't an issue for me anymore. Like that's, that's not troubling to me. Uh, so I, I, don't, I was like, okay, well, God can do it. He could have done it in a shorter amount of time if He wanted to. Could He not? That's how I kind of think about it. So that's not a problem to me. Number two, I think it's a natural reading of the text. As you look at it, um, in verse 5, where it says there was evening and there was morning. Verse 8, there was evening and there was morning. Verse 13, there was evening and there was morning. And it counts the days like this. It doesn't seem like He's talking about thousands and thousands of years or He's just talking poetically. It's literally saying... And then the night passed, and then a new day started. It's like it's just the natural reading of the text. If you if you come to Genesis one without the scientific presupposition of six point five billion years, you probably think, okay, God did this in twenty four six twenty four hour periods. Finally, if you look at Exodus chapter twenty, I think this kind of clears it up a bit, at least in my opinion. Not that. Others agree. But um, Exodus 20, starting in verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For... In six days, the Lord made the earth, the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, 
and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the argument here Moses is given in Exodus chapter 20 is, hey, God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh, so you should do the same thing. And so I think Exodus chapter 20 treats the days as literal. And that's the argument there. That's pretty good for me. But then it comes to the question of the age of the earth. Like what do we do about the current, current scientific consensus which says that the earth is something like 4.5 billion years old. So 4.5 billion years old when believing in six-day creation often leads to a supposed conflict with science um, because most Christians who hold that view teach that the earth is around 6,000 years old. So we're talking about 6,000 years is what the typical 24-hour young earth creationist believes versus the 4.5 billion years that the current scientific consensus says. And I'm saying that because things like that change all the time. So this is currently this is what people believe. But science is nowhere near a permanent thing, right? I mean, people, they, they advance and figure different things out. What do we do about this? Number one, one of the options for the age of the earth is, I guess, how to say it. And I'll tell you what I believe, even though this one I don't hold as firm as my last one. Number one, some Christians believe that the earth really is just 4.5 billion years old. They say, hey, that's what science says, and they think that a, that a truly faithful interpretation of Genesis 1 can allow for that. They'll do this either by the day-age theory, by saying, okay, all these days are symbolic for thousands and millions and trillions of years. Um, or they'll use the framework theory and say, well, this is just poetic, and so billions of years fit. Or some even have the gap theory, which is there's a large gap between verse 2 of Genesis 1, chapter 2, and verse 3. That, you know, he creates the earth and it sits there and then put in how many billions of years you want to put in it. And then God starts the creation process 6,000 years ago or whatever, the gap theory. Other Christians believe that the earth is young. It is however many thousand years old. But it was extremely aged by a worldwide flood. So you get waters covering all the earth, all the mountains, everything, and all just the mess that would cause has caused the earth to look as aged as it is. Uh, this is, I think, the prevailing opinion of Answers in Genesis, which I think is a great resource. Uh, you look that up. I'm not very scientific. I, I'm not sitting up here acting like I'm a scientist by any means. So I'm not here to talk to you guys about carbon dating or fossils or what a flood could do to the earth because that I just don't know. So you can go to AnswersInGenesis.com, look up their argument for that. Since I see myself as a Bible guy or a theologian more than a scientist, what I typically fall on is that Adam and Eve were created as mature human beings. I mean, they weren't created as babies and then let them grow up until they're old enough and then do this. And so they were created with an appearance of age, right? They were created as adults. And so in my mind, I'm completely satisfied to say, okay, if God could create two humans that were adults, why couldn't he just create a mature universe? Does that make sense? Like, so he just creates it. It's been here for a much shorter time, but it has the appearance like it's been here for billions of years. Now, could there be some philosophical problems? Could you 
Possibly, yes. But I'm pretty content with that one. I don't really struggle with it too much. Um, some people, obviously, just believe that the Earth is young and that science is wrong, that there are problems with carbon dating, that there are false presuppositions that lead to a misreading of the data due to the suppression of truth in sinful men's hearts. Those are really your options. Now, I'm pretty open about that. Like, you come to me and you say, Matt, I believe that they're, you know, 4.5 billion years old, and I believe that this, this, this. I'm not going to be too upset at you, even though I'm young earth, 6, 24-hour days. But I do want to talk about the problem of evolution. There are some things that if you say, hey, this is what I believe, like, that's a red flag for me. I, I feel like you're going too far not handling the biblical data faithfully. Number one, what we have to affirm as Bible-believing Christians is the special creation of man. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living Creature, verse twenty through twenty-three. The man gave names. We won't read that one. What we have to like the theory of evolution teaches this doctrine that we are just another animal made from the dust. That there is no significance, there is no dignity, that there is no purpose to mankind. We as biblical Christians have to reject that. We cannot say, yeah, we just evolved over billions of years and we started as, you know, a jellyfish at the bottom of the sea and we evolved until we had brains and minds. And we have to reject that because the Bible teaches that mankind was created by a supernatural divine act. We have to affirm the imago Dei, the image of God, the intentional creation of man. That flies in the face of evolution which says we're just a mere animal. Along with that, as Christians with a biblical worldview, we have to reject the denial of a historical Adam. So what happens when you reject Genesis 1, um, and some Christians try to do this, they say, well, the Adam, Adam and Eve narrative of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 isn't actually historical. We didn't come into being by two special creations of God, Adam and Eve, but we, we came through a process of evolution. Or, or what have you. We have to reject that because the gospel itself hinges upon a literal Adam. Amen. Uh, we see this in Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to read this passage um, 12 through 21. It says, Therefore, this is Paul speaking, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. There's a lot of questions that's going to come from me reading this passage, but just focus on the main point. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation. I want to condemn the train. That's what I want to do. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Amen. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 5 teaches that one man Adam sinned and plunged the whole human race into sin. And then through the one man Jesus Christ, through his perfect obedience and death on the cross, all who put their faith in him will be righteous. So you're represented by either person, right? You're either represented by Adam or you're represented by Christ. And the way the gospel works is this idea of federal headship that Adam represented us in our sin, and now through faith in Christ, we can have a new representative in Christ. So, not only does Paul assume the historicity of Adam, but the gospel is kind of built upon the concept of Adam really, truly existing. Number three, we have to reject the idea of macro evolution, if you will. In Genesis 1, we, I tried to emphasize it when we read it, looking at verse 11, where it says, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. We see this repeated over and over, verse 12. Um, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. We see it in verse 21. Uh, according to their kinds, the, the seed creatures should should go. So what we see is divinely imposed limitations on what can result from reproduction. That all these creatures are going to be um, reproducing according to their kinds. Uh, we see this in, we see microevolution, which is variations in the distribution of genetic possibilities within a species due to natural selection. We see that, like, you know, a bird's beak needs to be longer to get the pollen out of the flower, so the bird's beak gets longer over, over some time. That, that, that happens. What we don't see is, you know, jumping from, uh, it's never been observed, jumping from a bird, you know, a bird with a beak becoming a human being, right? Or a single cell becoming a bird with a long beak. That, that doesn't seem to reflect what Genesis 1 says. We need to reject that. And the reason why this is so important, to reject these ideas of evolution, to reject the, you know, the idea that there wasn't a special creation of human beings is because ideas have consequences. They really do. Because if you accept the, the, the idea of evolution explaining everything, explaining life itself, there is no reason to believe in the sanctity of human life. Amen. There's no reason to believe it. If we're not created by God, if we're not made in God's image, you know, why do we care about things like were just random clumps of cells that randomly chaotic came into being. Does that make sense? You know, if, if we're just due to the random chaos of evolution, there's no such thing as moral absolutes. There's no such thing as caring for the weak and helpless. You know, this is where the idea of like a master race comes from, right? Where it's like, hey, we're 
better and bigger and stronger, we should dominate because it's the survival of the fittest. Love is just simply the continuation of the species. Now these are ideas that completely fly in the face of the biblical evidence. We need to reject um, those core doctrines of evolution. No matter where you stand upon the age of the earth or, or how to take Genesis 1-1, you need to affirm as a biblical Christian the special creation of man. You need to, um, to fully accept and affirm the historicity of Adam. And you need to believe what the Bible says about this divinely imposed limitations on reproduction. So that's creation. But I want to turn your uh, minds to Romans chapter 8 as we're kind of wrapping up here. In Romans 8, you know, this world is beautiful. I hope you see that. But I want you, I want you to keep in mind that this world is not all that it should be or wants to be or once was. Romans chapter 8 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the, revel for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. This personifies creation, what Paul does here. He says that creation is longing for redemption. That creation is groaning, anticipating freedom, transformation. That creation, while as beautiful as it is, it's not what it should be because sin itself has affected creation in ways that we can never understand. So much so that it says creation is subjected to futility. But the good news of the gospel is that while God finished with creation at the end of Genesis 1 and it was, everything was done, we have a promise that God is going to do a new creative work. He's going to do a transforming, a redeeming creative work that happens at the end of Revelation in chapter 21 where um, John writes here, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I want you to long, not just for this creation, but to realize that a new heaven and a new earth is coming, where God will be dwelling with us, and all will be people. So how do we apply this to our lives today? I've got two points, and then we'll wrap up here. Number one, Christian, you don't need to fear science. We have this, we're spooked by it, right? We're afraid we're going to read a certain discovery or a certain book, and it's going to completely wreck our faith. I don't think that should be your... Your, your thought process. There's a quote by Kevin Young that's on your paper. Um, it says, In the end, there can be no conflict 
between what God reveals in Scripture and what He reveals in nature, which those are going to be our two primary subjects in our last lesson next week, um, what God reveals in Scripture and what He reveals in nature. But here's what He continues on. If all the facts could be known perfectly, we would find that the Bible and science do not contradict each other. Amen. Completely agree. God is the God of truth. So if we knew science perfectly and our Bible perfectly, there would be no contradictions. Now, we don't know those perfectly all the time, do we? We don't know science perfectly, for sure. We also don't know our Bibles all the time perfectly, as individual people. Um, but keep going. It says, Christians have nothing to fear from rigorous scientific investigation. But every Christian should agree that if the Bible teaches one thing and scientific consensus teaches something else, we will not ditch the Bible. So that's where you need to stand. You need to say, hey, I'm not afraid of any fact. I'm not afraid of any investigation or release or anything like that because the Bible is true. And if we truly understand this proof or whatever, it's going to align perfectly with the Bible. But with that in mind, fearless thinking as Christians, we need to say, hey, if scientific consensus says one thing and it obviously contradicts the Bible, we're going to roll with the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's the authority. Finally, my last point. Is let all this amazing creation lead you to glorify God. Like we have been given such an awesome gift, have we not, in this world that we live in? I was just talking about to Steve um, about how perfect today was. Was this not just like a perfect fall day, not a cloud in the sky, wonderful weather? Like you should, as a Christian, see that and, and have it lead you to glorifying God. It's a discipline. And I want just to ask you, like, how do you see the world by default? Do you see it as an atheist or do you see it as a Christian? Do you see the leaves changing and think, awesome? Or do you see the leaves changing and think, God is so creative and good and glorious? You see the mountains and think that. You see the sky. You see the rain. I want to challenge you to marvel at creation and, and have it lead you to the Creator. If you just stop at the beauty of creation, like you're not going far enough, you need to take creation and let it lead you to the Creator. It's almost a discipline that you have to work in your life. Not just to you know, live life as this practical atheist, if you will. Psalm 19, 1-2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day He pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. You are absolutely assaulted day by day, night by night, with the glory of God in creation. Will you see it? Will you cherish it? Will you marvel at it? Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So we see hints of God's power in the thunderstorm and hints of God's creativity in the sunflower and hints of God's provision and and the way the food cycle works and all these things. And so I just want to encourage you, Christian, to see the world as a Christian, as a gift from our good God. To close things out, Wayne Grew, quote, it's in your paper, one glance at the sun or the stars convinces us of God's infinite power. And even a brief inspection of any leaf on a tree or of the wonder of the human hand or of any one living cell convinces us of God's great wisdom. Who can make all of this? Who could make it out of nothing? Who could sustain day after day for endless years? Such infinite power, such intricate skill is completely beyond our comprehension.
when we meditate on it, we give glory to God. I invite you to do that in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of creation. Thank you for making us in your image. God, I pray that you can strengthen us as Christians to stand upon the truth of your scripture. God, that we won't be swayed um, by the world, but that we will be determined to hold firmly to the trustworthy word. God, that so clearly shows that you are the source of all things. In you we live and move and have our being. God, I pray that we can begin to, to take on the discipline of seeing your creation as a gift straight from your hand. God, thank you for the beauty of this world. This is my Father's world. God, we thank you for it. We thank you for the beauty. And I pray that you can just transform our minds, renew our minds, so that we can see it in a biblical way. In your name, Jesus. Amen.